Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and my inner geek is very excited today. Um, I have uh, at the other end of the line, in my eyes anyway, one of the world's leading researchers into emotion regulation. Now emotion regulation is a term that I don't think is often heard when people talk about emotional intelligence, they often talk about emotional awareness or self-awareness or emotion management. uh, or self-management or management of others or relationship management those sorts of phrases um and and the term emotion regulation doesn't really feature so i'm uh, i'm very excited to explore that some more and to to chat some more with uh, with the guests that we've got on so enough about me let's let's get our guest on the air so let me welcome all the way from uh, uh, over in the u.s uh, james grace hello james hello phil how are you doing very well thank you it's a pleasure to be uh, with you today no, thank you. It's uh, it's Friday evening here, but Friday morning your time, I think. That's right. Wonderful. Um, so uh, as you'll know, we with the Emotion at Work podcast, we open with a um, an unexpected yet innocuous question. Um, and what that help, hopefully helps us to do is have a slightly different conversation with each of the guests that we get on, but also to to get to know them a little better as well. Um, and I'm going to uh, steal a question that I was asked actually for the last episode of the podcast, um, which is if you could... Um, either undo or copy and paste with uh, aspects of your life, would you rather undo or would you rather copy and paste and why? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think um, copy and paste uh, is sounding pretty good to me uh, right now because I've been blessed with uh, a lot of very, very happy periods with intense meaning and connection with people. I love and um, the thought of extending those periods into the future uh, by replicating them sounds really exciting to me. And wonderful. And are there any of those in particular, any particular episodes that stick out for you as ones you'd like to copy and paste? Uh, well, lots of them. I, as I say, I've been very blessed. I um, have particularly enjoyed being a, a father to three children, and uh, that's been a huge focus for me. Um, and I'm, that's a particularly salient moment in parenting for me because two of our three kids are now in college and the third is uh, heading into her last year of high school uh, this coming year. So that's been a big focus and uh, seeing that transition brings to mind the amazing times I've had with each of the three kids over the years. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm yet to I'm yet to experience that period in their life. So uh, so my my three, uh, one is about to make the transition from what in the UK we call primary school, which is up to age 11. Um, uh, and then sort of 11 to 12, they then transition up to what we call secondary school. Do you have middle school as well? Is that right? We do. That's right. Elementary, middle and high school. And where do, when does middle school end? So usually uh, middle school uh, is just uh, through uh, eighth grade. So it's sixth through eighth grade. Uh, okay. And then we have uh, ninth through 12th as high school. Okay. Okay. Um, so, what would I rather do then? Would I cop? Would I rather copy and paste, or, or would I rather undo? Um, so, in, in a way, this podcast is very timely for me because I've had one of the most emotionally tumultuous weeks I think I've I've had in in a, in a long time. Um, so, I'm in the process of trying to buy a house, and it has it has been anything but smooth sailing this week. Um, so there, there are certainly some things um, that I would like to undo, and there are some things that I, that I, that I definitely would want to copy and paste from from when things have been going smoothly. Smoothly, um, as a general rule, I think I would rather copy and paste than undo. But um, yeah, there are there's been times this week where I've I've really really wanted to to undo some things, uh, in the hope that I guess I would get a different outcome to the one that we have. Although, you know, uh, and I'm sorry that the week's been difficult. I hope, I hope it ends up uh, in the right place for you. Uh, what I find interesting about the question is that both are, are really impossible, uh, uh, which makes it such a lovely thought experiment, right? So mm. in a way, I hesitate about undoing because I've, I really believe that difficult times and difficult emotions have a lot to teach us. Uh, and... Mm-hmm. Um, so to undo that would be to undo the learning that I think makes us stronger and better people. Um, yeah. 
copying and pasting, of course, also really can't be done because uh, every experience we have changes us. But to the extent that we've had exciting or meaningful uh, moments and we want to have more of those, I think copy and paste uh, sounds a little better to me. But bo- both are both are tough uh, because they can't really happen, of course. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, because you, you, you can never fully replicate um, you know, what, what's what's happened before. You can never fully replicate it again. Um, yeah. Can I pick up on on one of the things that you mentioned there, which was about difficult emotions? That's a that's a frame or a, a, a preface to emotions that that I don't hear very often. So sometimes I hear kind of positive or negative or constructive or destructive. Difficult is um, is a is one I I rarely hear. Yeah. So you know we use the terms positive and negative emotions uh, pretty loosely. Um, I think often to mean emotions that feel good in the moment versus emotions that feel bad in the moment. And, mm-hmm. and I hesitate about that distinction because what we've learned uh, as we've studied emotions is that positive emotions, uh, that is to say ones that can feel good in the moment, are sometimes positive, meaning beneficial in the long term, but sometimes they can be uh, you know, not very helpful in the long term. And, sim- mm-hmm. and similarly, so-called negative emotions, called that because they don't feel good in the moment, can uh, actually have very salutary effects, um, even though they don't feel very good in the moment. So I prefer to, when possible, stay away from uh, the terms positive and negative emotions because of the confusion those terms engender. And for me, I think uh, difficult emotions provides, as you say, a slightly different frame. That is to say Mm. that there are some emotions that you know, we find challenging uh, and that lead us to question whether they're helpful. And I think sometimes difficult emotions, anger, sadness, even guilt, uh, can be helpful uh, for us in achieving our longer-term goals. Um, but the sense of difficulty allows us to ask the question, are they helpful, these emotions I'm experiencing or I ant- uh, anticipate experiencing? And mm-hmm. I think that question is a very important one because it allows us, when necessary, to employ resources to change or alter those emotions. So that when we find that we have difficult emotions uh, and answer the question, are these helpful or not helpful, uh, in the direction of thinking they're not helpful, we then can do what I'd say is regulate our emotions. We can try to influence them in a way that will better help us achieve our goals, whatever those might be. So that that's why it's a preferred frame for me to think about difficult emotions. So I, I was I was with a sports, uh, an, an ex or retired, not an ex sportsman. And he was showing some footage of, um, of him in action. He was saying, I, I pushed the emotion to one side and it was all about the technique and getting the technique right. Yeah, I, I could see from from his face expressions, the 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 anger and the and the frustration and the um, determination, you know, that, that he he was having, and he was using that emotion to to give him additional, um, you know, adrenaline or just additional focus or, or energy or whatever it might have been. Um, but I find it yeah interesting that in in that when the goal is to achieve a um, a higher level of sporting performance, actually the emotion can be. Uh, you might want to regulate it up, not down. You might want to take an emotion like anger, for example, and and, and uh, regulate it up rather than regulate it down. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful example. Uh, you know, we've, we're very interested in cases where people uh, regulate uh, emotions, uh, particularly in unexpected ways. Um, and of course, the thing that we often think of uh, is, the, is the simple case where we are trying to decrease so-called negative emotions or increase so-called positive emotions. But mm. if you think about uh, the other two possibilities, namely increasing negative emotions or decreasing positive emotions, those are quite interesting. And our studies show that those happen. People are actually very motivated in special circumstances to not only do the obvious things, but also do the things that are a little more surprising, just just the ones you've mentioned, in fact. So people are very uh, motivated in some circumstances to, to actually increase emotions that we might otherwise regard as negative. Uh, and I think the example of sports is a terrific one where, uh, you know, team members uh, often 
as it were, psych themselves up, get themselves pumped up with angry, loud music uh, and cheers. And uh, uh, I, I think that can be immensely effective uh, for enhancing sports performance. Mm. And, and uh, it, But it's more than sports. I, I think in, in many competitive uh, interactions uh, outside the sports field, uh, it's useful to harness powerful emotions like anger. So, for example, if if one finds oneself in a political context where one feels uh, things aren't going the right direction uh, mm -hmm. and one starts to feel a powerful sense of anger over perceived injustice, uh, that can be very motivating and can sustain uh, action that's very much in accord with one's longer term goals and values. So, no, I agree completely. I, and I think what's interesting about this, Phil, is that I think there's a there, there's often a cultural narrative, uh, and we're we're quite conf conflicted, in fact, in that narrative about the proper place of emotion. Mm. And I think you know this goes back thousands of years uh, to to competing traditions uh, within the larger Western conversation about whether emotions should be silenced. That is to say, the best state is a non-emotional state, or whether emotions are the kinds of things that we should master and modify and use and harness. And I think this is uh, really at the core of our cultural confusion about the best way to uh, uh, approach our emotions. And so you have mm -hmm. even, a, even accomplished uh, sports figures saying that they actually try to rid themselves of emotion uh, because they have subscribed to this idea that the best performance is uh, a non-emotional performance. And you certainly see that in other domains as well. Uh, but I think if you look carefully, far from having uh, rid themselves of emotions, high-level uh, performers in, in many domains have actually uh, mastered uh, the technique of uh, engaging their emotions, or what I would say regulating their emotions, um, in order to achieve their longer-term goals. So I find this a very interesting, very interesting case, because people are unaware sometimes even of how they're approaching their own emotions. And, and I think in the workplace, especially, I mean, I, I, I can't comment from an, from that an informed standpoint for the US, but in the UK in particular, um, the general narrative would be um, emotionless or minimal emotion is the, uh, is, is the most effective way or, or the, um, the most likely to, to get you success um, in, in what you do. And yet, um, I, I agree. I, I see the you know what you talked about as the um, you didn't say confusion. I can't remember the word you used about the two different narratives that run. Because at the same time, you know, uh, leaders are told to be empathic and they're told to be compassionate and they're told to be vulnerable and they're told to be um, you know these things that will you know improve how 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 others perceive them. So it's like it's almost as though you you have to 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 minimize or, or, or rid yourself of emotion to until you get to a significantly high enough position in the organization and then then you can start to to display uh, or in, engage with some of them um but only in particular circumstances or particular contexts you know it's almost like you can hear but you can't overhear or you can't hear but you can't overhear um and and those variety of contexts then make it tricky to know well when should i and when shouldn't i yeah, and I think that's right. And I think part of the, the, the conflict that people feel uh, between these competing narratives about performance is enhanced if you have no emotions versus performance is enhanced if you do have emotions, I think the confusion or conflict flows from a basic uh, sort of uh, uncertainty about whether emotions are good or bad. Mm -hmm. And people feel, feel as though they need to answer that question uh, uh, in a very simple way. And I think our approach, Phil, is to take a step back and say, wait a sec, let's check whether that question is the right question to ask. Mm. And I think we've decided uh, in affective science uh, research uh, focused on emotion regulation that that's not a very helpful question. And the one that we're circling around now in our conversation is a much more helpful uh, way to go, which is let's, let's ask instead uh, when emotions are good or helpful versus bad or unhelpful. Mm. Not whether they are, because that presumes a context-invariant answer. Whereas the new, the new question, which I think is much more helpful, about 
the conditions under which or when emotions are helpful or harmful for a particular person with respect to a particular goal, much more helpful. It's a much more powerful question because it allows us to begin to uh, address the possibility that sometimes emotions are helpful with respect to some goals, uh, but at other points, those same emotions may not be helpful uh, with respect to uh, the goals one has. And this is made even more complicated in the workplace and in other contexts because we often have multiple competing goals simultaneously. Absolutely. We want, right? I mean, that's the story of the human condition. We want to be good family uh, members. We want to be good partners. We want to be good workers. We want to uh, you know, be good members of our community, but those often are intention. And so emotions or responses that might be helpful with respect to one set of goals might be really not very helpful with respect to another. So I think that new question about when or under what conditions are emotions helpful or unhelpful really opens the doorway to a very different way of thinking about uh, our emotions and I think brings into the foreground uh, the topic we're talking about today, which is emotion regulation, because I think, you know, when when you ask the question about when emotions are helpful or harmful, you get an answer that isn't all one or all the other. It's it's nuanced. And then you say, well, if emotions are sometimes helpful and sometimes not helpful, what do I do? What what strategies can I use? when emotions seem to not be helpful for me in this particular context. Mm -hmm. And there you can, uh, you know, start to get a little more creative uh, about how you approach your emotions because you're not thinking you need to kill them all or let them all live. You, in fact, think about cultivating some and discouraging others. And I think that that really is what we're thinking about when we talk about emotion regulation. Yeah, and cultivating some in some cultivating some in some contexts, and cultivating others in other contexts. You know, depending on, uh, like you said, depending on what it is. So we we talked a co- about a couple of different, uh, I guess, key terms so far. So it might be worthwhile defining them. Then, so um, what would you go for for a working definition for emotions? Yeah, so this is one of the oldest questions in um, the field. Of course, William James uh, famously asked more than a century ago, "Well, what is emotion?" And um, I don't think we have a great answer to that, uh, that this is something that's currently debated in the field. You know, I would say an emotion is sort of a multi-part response to situations that we perceive as being important and relevant to our goals. And when I say a multi-part response, that's just a fancy way of saying that that response has a behavioral component, so we're more likely to do some things than others in that situation. Mm -hmm. It also has an experiential component. In other words, it feels like something to be in an emotional state. Uh, And uh, there's also a physiological uh, component to the response so that we, our bodies respond in particular ways. Okay. So, so it's got those different aspects and different components then. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so we're talking about, you know, the, the, and the labels we give these, you know, sort of multi-part responses to situations that we see as important to us. Uh, you know, we give them labels like fear and anger and sadness and so forth. And these, mm-hmm. and, and the debates, you know, in the field have been around, you know, how tightly coupled are these different aspects? So do I always feel something when I'm in an emotional state? Or could I have an emotion and not really in the moment be aware of it? So there are a lot of debates about it. But I think it's a common sense sort of way of thinking about emotions that says emotions are more than just a feeling. So it's the it's the feeling plus the behavioral response, Mm -hmm. plus the physiological changes, the heart rate changes, the sweating in your palms, the respiratory changes. That whole package is what we kind of mean by emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our starting point, I think, for most people today. And, and there are a lot of debates. Are they universal? Does everyone everywhere have exactly the same emotions? I think the answer is no. Are there some important similarities? I think the answer is yes. Uh, are the, how, do the, how does the brain generate these emotions? Uh, huge debates about the brain bases of fear and anger and sadness. 
But I mm-hmm. think if I think if you ask people in the field or even outside the field, kind of what's the basic common sense definition of emotion? They'd say something like what I said, sort of this multi-part response plays out over seconds to minutes. It has to do with helping you position yourself with respect to an important situation, given your goals at the moment. And uh, sometimes that positioning is helpful for you, given your goals. And sometimes the way you respond in an emotion is not helpful. And that brings us back to this whole issue of, well, what would you do? How do you regulate this so-called emotion if it turns out that it's not really being helpful to you? Your anger, your physiology, your behavioral response where you really feel like hitting somebody, that may not at all be in line with your goals to be a good parent to a young child who's really frustrating you. And in that, mm-hmm. in that circumstance, that package, that multi-part package of anger, uh, we would feel in the moment we might think, this is not the way I want to be with my child. And so at that moment, we would decide this package of anger is not what I want. It's not helpful given my goals. And so I'm going to try to do something about it. And that's what brings us to emotion regulation. So one, I was talking with somebody recently about um, having you as a guest on the podcast. And one of the questions that they asked me to ask you, so it's a lady called Helen Amory on, on Twitter. She goes by the handle at Wild Fig Solutions or at Wild Fig Solons. Um, but she was she was inquiring about emotion, emotion experience. And as in the... Um, so you talked about the, the three different components and one of those was the experiential, but you know, how it feels and, and how, how there can be individual differences between how intense an emotion may feel, you know, how intense that experience might be or how long that experience might go for. So if, if you, if you and I went through the same experience, we could, uh, went through the same events, sorry, we could experience either different emotions or we could experience maybe the same emotion, but experience it very differently. Um, and so, and, and is that because of the way that we regulate our emotions, or is that because of the um, the different kind of triggers and associations that we have around it, or a combination of two, or neither? Yeah. So I think it's at least a combination of those two plus some other stuff. Um, and I think okay. I think the observation is spot on. So, and that's one of the most important observations to make, which is that. Emotions are uh, can vary a lot and not only vary between people, let's say between the two of us, but even within one of us, you know, let's say, you know, you've had a tough week this week. You're sharing with me a little bit about the housing challenge uh, that you've been yeah. facing. And I would say that, you know, if you got had a problem, uh, t- one of your tires uh, blew on you in a, uh, on the motorway uh, and you uh, had had to pull to the side of the road and, and fix your tire, um, that, that might elicit a very different response this week than it would uh, a month from now or a month ago when you didn't have as much stress in your week and some of the upsets that you shared with me. So I think it's not just that emotions differ between people, that also differs within a single person over time. And both of those observations about how variable emotions are give us the some clues about where the this is coming from. And I think, you know, yes, it's true that our associations uh, and our cultural practices, the things we experienced when we were younger, uh, but also the culture we're living in now, those powerfully shape how emotions are constituted and play out over time. Um, But then even within a given cultural context, whether it's in England today or England another uh, century or in America today or in some other part of the world, you know, there's a, a, a lot of, um, uh, I think, variability in how people uh, make sense of, of their emotions and, and, and how they uh, uh, orient towards them. And so whether they think uh, certain emotions are acceptable or not acceptable, helpful or not helpful. And, they, and in that cultural context, uh, there, there's still difference because some of us have temperaments, that is to say, early appearing probably uh, biologically-based differences to be more reactive to certain cues than others. So we know, we look around ourselves and we see some people just spend most of their waking moments in in a really state of uh, high positive emotion. They're just very, very happy at baseline. 
Mm. Whereas other people uh, are born with temperaments that incline them to lower positive emotions and some have higher negative emotions, uh, so-called negative emotions like sadness or anxiety. And these are early appearing differences that appear to be strongly genetically uh, uh, modified or uh, produced. And so, mm-hmm. so when we think about the variation in emotion, yes, it can be the associations, the cultural context, our personal learning history. But yes, it can be biology uh, that shapes each of us. And also, that's just on the emotion generation side. That's what emotions we're likely to have. And then uh, we can also have this extra layer of regulation differences. So we get dealt a different hand culturally or temperamentally from other people. And then, mm-hmm. and then what's so important, I think, about emotion regulation is that you can then take whatever hand you've been dealt and play it the best way you possibly can. Right? So we get dealt different hands temperamentally, culturally, whatever. But then the question is not, can we go back and change our genes? We don't know how to do that yet uh, in a way that would make a difference emotionally. And yeah. so, and so what, what I think is important is, well, where can you change things? And it's not the emotions you're likely to have. It's what you can do with your emotions and how you can learn to skillfully manage or enhance your emotions. And what's crucial is, I think, for, for people to understand that this is not a program of taking away all emotions. Not at all. Emotion regulation is about having the choice or the capacity or the skills to be able to make really smart, helpful decisions about which emotions to, to cultivate and which to uh, diminish uh, in a particular context. So that's how I'd answer the question about variability across people and a within person over time. Yeah, okay. And, and within that, it, it sounded like you gave a working definition for what emotion regulation is as well. Is there anything that you would add to that? Yeah, so I think, you know, emotions, uh, as we've discussed, are these multi-componential or multi-part responses that play out over time. And emotion regulation, simply put, is just activating a goal to try to modify one or more aspects of emotion, the experiential part, the behavioral part, the physiological part, or the whole package. And so you may be trying to turn it up. You may be trying to turn it down. Uh, Any of that counts. As long as you have a goal in the moment to try to modify one or more aspects of an emotion, that is emotion regulation. Okay. And, and your, your research suggests that there are a number of different families of emotion regulation. That, that's right. Um, do you want to outline what those are? I'd be happy to, Phil. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, from my perspective and thinking about how people might go about regulating emotions, it's helpful to ask a prior question, which is, mm. well, if, if, if emotions unfold over time and have these different parts, how do we think about how they unfold and how they are generated? And let's do this in a really simple way. And so we found it helpful to think, well, there's some situational features or some aspects of a situation that we uh, tend to uh, rather than other aspects of that situation. Okay. And then once we've, once we've attended to those aspects of the situation, we then think about them in particular ways. And it's this combination of being in the right kind of situation, attending to it, and then thinking about those aspects of the situation that we're attending to that leads to this multi-componential response. And if we use that very, very simple idea about emotions playing out in certain situations, when we attend to certain features, and then think about it in, in particular ways, we can then use that very simple cartoon for how emotions get generated to make some distinctions. And so these are the families of emotion regulation processes that we and other people have been interested in studying. And so if you start at the front end, let's take a a situation where, again, going back to a family context, but you can take a work context. So let's say it's a child, but it could also be a coworker Mm -hmm. in a particular situation who's doing something that you find annoying that you really would prefer they not do. So that's a situation. And you notice your child, you know, uh, 
using horrible table manners. You notice your coworker playing music without earbuds in a way that's obviously going to distract you and other people around him or her. Mm-hmm. A- and that's a situation. You then attend to it. You pay attention to it. Now, if you were totally distracted uh, and you didn't even notice your child's bad behavior or your coworker's inconsiderate behavior, you wouldn't have an emotional response because you wouldn't even attend to it. But if you do attend to it, you then might have uh, the beginnings of an emotional response. But what's crucial is it's not just the situation and your attention to it. It's how you think about it. So if you think as a parent, my child is willfully misbehaving and trying to get me angry and is just not amounting to the kind of person I want them to be, that can elicit anger and frustration. Uh, But if you have a different thought, if you think, He's just playing around. He's had a really stressful week. I, I really, you know, it's great that he has some spunk and he's not just bending over and kind of doing all the things that we want him to do. Good for him. That's a completely different response and you have a very different kind of emotion. And so mm. for me, for me, just sort of noticing that it's a situation that you have to attend to and then think about in particular ways that gets the emotion going tells me that, well, one, one way to fix or change or modify or regulate an emotion is what we call situational. So it's situation selection or situation modification. What does that mean? That's just a fancy way of saying, look, as people who can plan plan their lives, we can make decisions about which situations we're likely to encounter. We can avoid people we know are going to be toxic. We can seek out people we know we're going to like to be with. And the situational selection or situation modification. That's where you change a situation in a way that enhances the emotional impact. Those are very early uh, types of emotion regulation. They're so-called situational strategies. A second family, Phil, would come at the next step, at the attention, okay. at the attentional step. So now let's say we're in a situation, we haven't selected the right situation, or you know, it's a situation snuck up on us. Now we're focused on attentional forms of emotional regulation, asking, how can we modify our attention? For example, distracting ourselves uh, or really focusing on something else Mm -hmm. in a way that would modify the downstream emotion that we would otherwise have. That's the second family. So we have situational strategies, attentional strategies. The third family of strategies have to do with cognitive change. And that's where we are focusing on the thought process and we're trying to say, okay, normally I'd think about this, let's say, as a coworker being very inconsiderate, willfully trying to, you know, irritate uh, all the rest of us in the office. Uh, yeah. But I might say, again, I might cut him some slack and say, look, maybe he doesn't know that he, you know, is way too loud for the rest of us. Maybe this is, is just ignorance. Maybe he's just a little bit clueless. He's obviously new to the job. He doesn't really know the rules here. Maybe he's not trying to piss us all off. Maybe he's just clueless. And that new way of thinking about it suggests new action. So instead of getting all pissed off, I'll just say something politely. You know, would you mind using earbuds? I'm trying to, you know, take a phone call. And that co- mm. cognitive change really can totally affect your downstream emotions. And then the fourth family, Phil, is all the way at the end of the line. Let's say you haven't been able to do situational strategies or attentional strategies or even cognitive change strategies you can still do what we call response modulation. And that's where you have, you know you have an emotion, it's starting to come up, you're starting to get angry, starting to get frustrated. But there, what you try to do is you just try to manage the actual behavioral output, for example, so that you would try not to look upset or angry in front of your child or coworker. You still feel angry or upset, but you just try to manage or suppress that emotional output. And those are, the ma- okay. those are the major families. And you can see what we're doing. We're just saying, okay, how, do you, how, do, how does emotion get generated in a situation? You attend to it, you think about it, and that leads to this set of uh, responses that we call emotion. And all I'm saying is this so-called process model of emotion regulation just says, well, let's just target each of those major steps in emotion generation. We can target the situation and try to change it. We can target the attention and try to change it. Target the cognitions 
and try to change those. Or we can target the actual responses themselves. And those are the four families of emotion regulation processes. And, and I guess, um, well, I guess, I'm, I'm wondering, can, as well as that, an individual having agency to do those things, um, I'm wondering, can, can, can other people use those same strategies um, in an attempt to help? So, for example, when I think about when you talked about the attention one, you know, in terms of where we focus our attention. So I, I've been involved in, in a number of meetings in my working life where, um, and I guess partly working within human resources, you know, you, you're often involved in things like redundancies and reorganizations or, um, when, you know, breaking of bad news and so on. And, and I can remember in particular a couple of meetings where, where different members of the respective teams that I w- was in got very upset, either in terms of anger and frustration was one example, and sadness was another. And the, the most senior person in the room in both of those examples decided to ignore what was happening. So they, they ignored the person crying and they ignored the, the fact that somebody walked out, you know, stood up and walked out of the room. Um, so rather than whether that was a strategy to try and help them regulate their own emotion and therefore it just also became a strategy that that everyone else had to adopt or everyone uh, adopted in a complicit way Um, or whether that was their attempt to help the individuals that had the respective flooding out whether it be the flooding out through sadness or flooding out through anger Um, so yeah can other people kind of choose the, the, the family of regulation strategy as well yeah, oh, that's a lovely point. So you're making, I think, two different points, and and let me pull those apart because I think both yeah. of them, bo- both of them are really important. So the first point uh, I think you're leading with, which is, look, I've been talking about this as though it has to be, let's say, James regulating James's emotions or Phil regulating mm-hmm. Phil's emotions, and that's tr- that often happens. That's what we call intrinsic emotion regulation. So that's the person trying to regulate his or her own emotions. Um, and your your first the first part of your uh, comment I think uh, really is hel- helpful because you, you're pointing to the idea that uh, it doesn't have to be intrinsic emotion regulation it's often extrinsic emotion regulation mm. meaning that let's say James may go about trying to regulate Phil's emotions or in a work context James may try to regulate lots of people's emotions uh, if he's mm. if he's in a leadership role. And I think that's exactly right. And that, there, there's actually a lot of interest in the past couple of years in what, what's being called interpersonal emotion regulation or extrinsic emotion regulation. And that, mm. pre- that precisely has to do, uh, particularly in a workplace context, uh, with sort of the leadership style and the way that someone in a position of authority, but it can also be a friend or a colleague or coworker, uh, tries to go about shaping other people's emotional responses on purpose. So they have a goal to try to modify the other person's emotions. So that's the first point. I completely agree. I think it happens. It's important. People are trying to study how, how to do that effectively. But that, that brings me to the second point, which is, I think, a really important one as well, which is whether we're talking about intrinsic regulation or extrinsic regulation. So James regulating James's emotions or James regulating Phil's emotions. There's nothing yeah. that says that when I try to do that, I'm going to do it in a very sophisticated way or that I'm going to be successful. So the examples you've given me about prior work contexts, I'm not sure because I don't have the details, but those don't immediately strike me as being necessarily the wisest forms of extrinsic regulation, right? So there's no guarantee Mm -hmm. that when someone goes about trying to regulate either his or her own emotions or somebody else's, that they're going to do it in a very sophisticated or helpful way. They can actually make things worse so that far from emotion regulation being a one-size-fits-all kind of solution to all problems, it's just a way of talking about strategies that can either work or not work. And we found in our studies that there are some strategies that in general seem to be much more effective than other strategies. And the challenge is that many people, you know, for you know, just have no way of knowing what strategies are helpful, what, what the strategies even are, uh, because there's no rule book that says, you know, as we come up through elementary school or middle school or high school, 
here's, how you, here's what emotions are and here's how to regulate them successfully. Most of us do this by trial and error or we're looking at other people for models. And sometimes we don't have uh, successful experiences or very good models. And so we're really excited about finding venues for helping people understand what the options are, how to think about the problem. And that's, mm. be that's because we, we subscribe to a very simple idea, which is if you are able to articulate and define a problem clearly, it's much more likely you're going to be able to successfully address that problem than if it's a big mess and you have no idea how to conceptualize it. Uh, there, you're just likely to get stuck and do things, flail around and do things that are unhelpful. So that's, that's sort of the project as we study emotion regulation and emotion, try to think, well, what are the strategies that could be used and what might be the most helpful ways to approach emotions when they're, they're not working the way you want them to? Hmm. And can I pick up on, on one thing you said uh, in that there, which was the um, your research is finding or your research findings are that some strategies are more successful than others. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit for me of, of those different ones then? Because you talked about the situational ones, so situational selection or situation modification. You talked about the attentional ones. Um, then you talked about the cognitive um, ones. And then finally with the... Um, at the end of the at the end of the the, the line, I guess one of the best phrase, the modulation ones, um, which um, yeah. So what what did your what have your findings been then on the different strategies and their effectiveness? Yeah, thanks, Phil. So um, I think uh, the 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 punchline here is that uh, not just my lab, but now hundreds of labs around the world have been exploring this issue because emotions are so important to our lives. We really want to know how to make the most of them and. People have been really excited. And I think you know this, but just to kind of share this with your listeners, they're, yeah, they're now, you know, literally every year, tens of thousands of papers uh, on emotion regulation, trying to understand these processes. So it's been a really, really exciting period in the past couple of decades as people have really dug in and tried to figure out some of these questions that we're addressing today. I think um, the my starting point was a very simple idea. So in this process model of emotion regulation that we just talked about with these four basic strategies, um, mm -hmm. my thought was a simple one, which was if you can catch something early on so that you can, at the very beginning, where you're deciding what situation to get exposed to or how to modify a situation, that seems seemed to me like a higher leverage position to be in, then all the way at the end uh, of the cycle, these response modulation strategies. So we made the prediction, very simple prediction, that the earlier you go in general in this so-called uh, process model, the more uh, effective the strategies would be. And so to start out our research now several decades ago, what we did is we compared the cognitive strategies with the response modulation strategies. And in, partic mm -hmm. in particular, what we did is we looked at one form of cognitive change, which we call reappraisal. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. And we contrasted okay. reappraisal with one form of response modulation, which we called expressive suppression. Uh, and so we wanted to take two specific strategies that we knew people used in real life. The reappraisal is where you try to think differently about, in the example I gave a moment ago, your kid's misbehavior at the dinner table or your, your colleague's thought, thoughtless playing loud music or talking in a loud way at the next cubicle over. And reappraisal just is, can I change the way I would naturally think about this in a way that would make me feel better? So that's reappraisal. And it's cognitive change because it involves changing the cognitions that are the engine for making you feel a certain emotion. And we contrasted reappraisal, this type of cognitive change, with mm -hmm. expressive suppression, which is a type of response modulation. And that's where you just try to sh not show what you're feeling so that someone who's watching you might not know you're feeling anything at all. And so what we did, Phil, in these early studies is that we brought our participants into the laboratory, and we then elicited emotion. We made them emotional by showing them short film clips that we had 
in other studies pre-tested to make sure that they generally make people emotional. Okay. And so we showed them some short film clips and we randomly assigned participants either to just watch the films. That was our control condition. So they just did what they, whatever they wanted, just responded naturally. Or we randomly assigned our participants to try to reappraise or to think differently in a way that would make them feel calmer. That was our reappraisal condition. Or we, right. we randomly assigned them to expressive suppression. That is to say, just act in a way so that someone watching you wouldn't know you were feeling anything at all. And what we found, Phil, from that study and what people have replicated again and again and again is that the people in the suppression condition, so that's the response modulation, end of the line condition, they were able to look, look cool. They suppressed their behavior as we had asked them to, but that didn't help them feel better at all. The inside, their experience was just as intense as it would have been if they didn't suppress at all. So it didn't help them feel cool. And yeah. physiologically, and this is the key point, they had not just the same response as if they weren't regulating, they had a substantially increased physiological response. So that effort associated with suppression made them look cool, did not make them feel cool, and it actually increased their blood pressure and other aspects of their cardiovascular response compared to either of the other two groups. So, su wow. so suppression, we're not saying you should never suppress, but suppression is pretty costly. So you got to use it strategically. Now let's compare that to reappraisal. Reappraisal, which is this type of cognitive change. There, people were also able to engage this strategy, but there they not only looked cool. So when we coded the videotape records, we found that they showed less behavior than the people in the watch condition. They also reported feeling better. So unlike the suppression condition, where they looked cool and didn't feel any better at all, these people who were reappraising looked cool and felt cool. And mm. in a number of studies, now we've started to do brain imaging studies using functional magnetic resonance imaging. What we find is that people in a reappraisal condition, there are now more than 100 neuroimaging studies, particularly uh, focused on reappraisal. We find that the way that people are able to look cool and feel cool is that they're turning down using prefrontal cortical regions to turn down the activity in these emotion generative regions of the brain. So it's a very deep process. If you really rethink what you're experiencing, that can really, really have a powerful emotional impact. Um, and so this has led people, I think, to be quite excited about the possibility that different strategies could have very different consequences. And, mm. th and now people have done what's called meta-analyses. And that's just the idea that you instead of doing one study at a time, if there have been enough studies, you can actually take all those studies and gather them together and ask if you look across all of the studies that have been done, let's say on the effects of suppression or reappraisal, across all of the studies, what do we find? And the findings that I've just described from our early studies from two decades ago seem to be very, very consistent with dozens and dozens of other studies that have been done. Now, Phil, I want to be clear that even though that study and now dozens and dozens of other studies suggest that reappraisal may be more powerful than suppression, that doesn't mean reappraisal always works or is always helpful. So just like we asked the question about whether emotions, not, not whether emotions are always helpful or harmful, but under what conditions or when are they helpful or harmful, same, yeah. thi same thing here. So we need to ask the question, under what conditions are these forms of regulation helpful or harmful? And so uh, what we're finding is a nuanced picture, which is that in general, reappraisal and other strategies that come earlier in emotion generation are better than the response modulation. But that doesn't mean we always can use reappraisal. If we're in a situation that's brand new, that's overwhelming emotionally, we're not going to be able to rethink it. And so people, yeah. people just have to go to something else, let's say to an attentional strategy. So 
Phil, that's a quick summary of some of our core findings. Uh, and I think the punchline here that's really important to me is that there are different strategies. There, there are very different ways to regulate our emotions and that some of them are going to be more effective for some people in some circumstances than others. So the smarter we can be about emotion regulation and its appropriate application, the more helpful we can be, not just to ourselves, but as you pointed out, to other people as we try to help them with their emotions as well. That's a wonderful way to sum it up. Um, cause, you know, there's, a, there's a few things that, that you know, you've really got me thinking uh, in response to that around, um, oh, which one do I pick? So I guess that it could be that I guess you got me thinking, do I have a go-to? You know, is, is there a go-to family or a go-to family of strategies that I've got? Um, and, and I don't know the answer to that question. So that's one, it's something you've got me thinking about, which I'm going to think about some more. You know, where 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 do I tend to play? Or where, you know, are, are there any patterns in where I play? I guess maybe that's the best phrase to look at it. Are there any patterns in 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 the in the different family of strategy that, that I go for? So if people wanted to know more, whether that be to read more or to, to watch more around either your work or, you know, the work of your peers, where would be a good place to start? James, where should people go to find out more if they wanted to find out more? Yeah. So for someone who um, has an appetite for academic papers, which not everyone does because they kind of go on and on and get into all sorts of unhelpful detail. But for those reader, uh, listeners who are interested in that kind of detail, all they need to do is to Google my name. So James Gross, and th they'll see my Stanford psychophysiology lab come up. And on our website, we have all of the papers we've ever published. So we have oh, wow. okay. 400 or so papers from our group. Um, so that's, that's for the people who really like the, that kind of detail. Um, uh, and I think, you know, in that list, uh, and I can, you and I can uh, email about this and maybe I can send you a, a very accessible set of couple papers if people wanted to kind of get a quick overview. Okay, yeah, that'd be lovely. I'd be happy to do that as well. But that's probably the best place to go for now. Okay. Uh, and in uh, any, any books? So that's the that was for the academic, you know, those that like the journals. Um, and any books or um, uh, videos or, you know, anything like that that you would point people in the direction of? Yeah, you know, um, this is a complicated space. Uh, I think, you know, you're wanting a short answer, which I'd love to be able to give you. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't unfortunately, have a book myself that's broadly accessible. Um, most of the work that my group has done has been in the more academically inclined. I think, you know, a conversation like this gets me excited thinking about the ways that maybe we could better, uh, you know, sort of lay out this material for people who don't have the time or inclination to dive into sort of all of the details of academic uh, work. But for now, I'm afraid, you know, we've just mostly got different kinds of academic papers. Um, I've probably on the on the web got some, you know, talks uh, that are sort of out there floating around if people Google me. But there, there's okay. there's not one. Unfortunately, there's not one go to source uh, for, for kind of understanding this space. Sadly, not. No, that's okay. So can I ask a, a different but slightly related question? Who should we look out for for the future? You know, who, who, who are people that you're excited about that are doing research in this field? Yeah, so, uh, well, that's a great question. Um, and I, I'll try to limit my enthusiasm because this could take, take me a while. So All right, okay. <laughs> what, what's, ex what's exciting here uh, is that the research that's happening now, I think I mentioned a moment ago that literally there are tens of thousands of papers getting published every year now on emotion regulation and um, lots of excitement uh, here. Um, I think some of the most exciting work that's being done, I'll just highlight a couple people and notice that these people are all over the place, right? So some people, let's, let's take uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Gal Sheps, uh, who's, a, okay. who's a professor uh, in uh, Israel, Tel Aviv. And um, Gal Sheps and his uh, students are hard at work trying to understand how people make decisions about what uh, forms of regulation they should uh, use, right? So that's a very important question because what we've, yeah. been, you and I've been talking about is, you know, well, are there different strategies and do different strategies have different consequences? And the answer is yes, there are different strategies and yes, they have different consequences. So the next question obviously is, well, how are people making decisions? How do, how do 
people, you know, figure out, as you said, what patterns they typically have and how do they change? Mm. How do they change those patterns? And we're talking about, you know, obviously ways to enhance well-being, but we're also talking about in the clinical context, people who are struggling with depression or anxiety. And of course, mm. many therapies are in part designed to help people be more successful and skillful in regulating. So Gal Sheps and his team are using uh, uh, bio biological and behavioral measures to try to understand the choice process. So how people are actually going about uh, choosing which strategies to use and how conscious is this and can we affect uh, th these, these processes. So those are some of the, I think, exciting findings out of Gal Shep's work in Israel. Uh, but there are people working literally all over the globe uh, on, the, on this uh, uh, set of questions. Um, and so I think, you know, we're going to be looking for, mm. looking for better and better answers to how we uh, can be more sophisticated uh, managers of our own emotions and those of people around us. Um, there's also really exciting work uh, as we think about Angela Duckworth, for example, who's a friend and colleague, uh, working yeah. professor at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Very exciting work thinking about how can we take what we know about emotion regulation and apply it in a school context. So we know that kids middle school uh, struggle uh, to uh, adjust to the new challenges as they move from elementary to middle school and then into high school. How can we use what we know about emotion regulation to help teachers and to help kids uh, thrive academically? And Angela and her team are just doing some really exciting work thinking about that. So those are two examples, Gal Sheps, Angela Duckworth, noted mm -hmm. uh, of, of dozens and dozens of exciting laboratories around the world who are engaging uh, these problems. And instead of what we've done for thousands of years now, which is just sort of doing our best and flailing around, we're starting to have some science behind uh, our uh, decisions about how to regulate our emotions to, to lead more successful and happy and fulfilled lives. So I, I'm a really, ex really excited about the work that's happening. It, it, it is really exciting. And, and, and I'm really interested in um, Angela Duckworth's work and, and also because she's teaming up, I think, with Carol Dweck as well. Um, to try and bring kind of grit and growth mindset together into um, into one. I'm sure Angela Duck was also involved in a really big longitudinal study as well, but I can't but I can't remember what that's called. I'll have to find I'll, I'll dig that one out and put it in the um, and put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. All right. Wonderful. Okay. So let, let's let's put it together then. So is there is there anything else then, James, that you're thinking, feeling, or or want to say? about the topic of uh, emotions and or emotion regulation. Yeah, so Phil, I think I think this has been a great conversation. I mean, we've touched on the ideas that, you know, emotions, what are they? These packages of uh, different responses. We've talked about how emotions are sometimes helpful, sometimes not. So the real question we need to ask is, when are emotions helpful for us and when are they harmful? And when we answer the question that an emotion, either for us or for someone we care about, is harmful with respect to goals that we care about, then we're starting to think about emotion regulation. And we discussed how there are actually different, at least four different kind of uh, families of emotion regulation strategies, and that some of these tend to work better than others. And so we can be mm. more and more sophisticated in our thinking about how to guide or cultivate certain emotions in ways that uh, will lead to, I think, you know, happier, more productive functioning. So for me, that's been the arc of our conversation. Been a lot of fun trying to think with you about some of these key issues. And uh, hopefully this will be of some use to, to folks who are listening. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. So uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, James. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Like you said, we'll, we'll pick up over email for uh, maybe to get some of those more accessible papers uh, available to people. And I'll, um, I'll make sure I put links in the show notes to uh, all of the other researchers and or uh, pieces of research that we've discussed. So all that leads me to do is to say a very heartfelt thank you very much, James. Thanks for being on the Emotion at Work podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Phil. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. 
You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.